Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. No, but I get to look at myself in the in, yeah. You look good, Dave. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. I'm ready for you. You definitely look. You definitely look good enough for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a great vo- face for radio. This is David Zoll. David is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries and co-host of the Mockingcast. He also serves on the staff of Christ Episcopal Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's the author of A Mess of Help. From the Crucified Soul of Rock and Roll, and the co-author of Law and Gospel, A Theology of Sinners and Saints. Most recently, he published Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. His father, Paul Zoll, was a well-known His father, Paul Zoll, was a well-respected theologian in his own right, author of Grace and Practice and an advocate for sort of a Lutheran understanding of the law and the gospel as the primary lenses through which we understand our faith. David's someone I deeply admire, not just because of his incredibly helpful understanding of the gospel as a source of deep liberation, but also because of his humility, his ability to laugh at himself and at the world around him. I just saw a new newsletter came in. I haven't read it yet, though. Oh, yeah. It's about uh, so my wife and I... Uh, just a funny side story. So these friends of ours were like, "Hey, we our our kids want to have your kids over Friday night to you know come over and play. Uh, why don't you drop them off and you guys can go out to dinner and have a date, and then we'll we'll all get together for dessert afterwards." And we're like, "Great!" And so we didn't want to drive real far. Mm-hmm. We just literally sat in their driveway and pulled up Yelp, and we're like, "We'll find. There's got to be something decent around here." And so there's this restaurant that I've driven by a million times and it's this like French restaurant. And I was like, oh, it gets really good reviews and it doesn't look super expensive. So we'll go. We'll check that out. Dude, we were the youngest people that showed up for dinner on a Friday night. The youngest people by 30 years. Like everybody's everybody's coming that in is with so funny. their oxygen there's, tanks there's a and place their like that in There's a place like that in Washington where my, 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 my wife's grandparents have always gone it's called de carlos you go in there it is everyone's on a walker it is it is the oldest crowd it's known as like the old people's restaurant yeah we, in town. we were sarah said we should make a drinking game where you have to take a drink every time you hear someone say the word cardiologist <laughs> Hear, hearing aid battery <laughs> well let's talk about uh let's talk about you um where you come from you've got a you've got a theologically famous father Right, semi-famous, <laughs> semi-famous, yeah. Theology famous, theology famous, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what was what was growing up like? I mean, in terms of our, our household was really a fun household to grow up in. I, I have no no serious complaints. Always got the sense my dad wasn't like the other dads. Mm. You know, he was he was liked and even loved by a lot of the other dads. But there was uh, he played catch with us and stuff like that. But that was not where his interest lay. Hmm. And um, he was more likely to sort of sing uh, 
guitar solos to us and see if we could figure out which which Beatles song it was. Or um, he he took me to I mean, he took me to see the Rolling Stones in concert when I was in fourth grade. Just wow. didn't even tell me about it beforehand. Just picked me up from school and we went to to Death Valley actually Clemson to go see the Steel Wheels tour. He was always very very funny and always interested in sort of you know offbeat slightly ultra uh things but then you know church was the center of our lives but it was the episcopal church so kind of of a bygone era i guess now uh in that it was low church and um very you know sort of low e evangelical in uh, the sense that it was really you know preaching there was salvation and sin and redemption and um but with a lot of because he was a man of such learning and kind of strange background his father had been a a national geographic uh editor and a senior explorer Mm. sort of like a almost like a wes anderson character so he'd grown (laughs) up all over the world and uh and then my mom is from central florida so coming from a very different background but, but kind of amazingly, you know, compassionate and loving woman. So we had, a, a, you know, just a character for a dad, a little eccentric, but very much, you know, um, into the proclamation business and into the pastoral care business and, and loving people, but a lot of really difficult folks. And so over, you know, dinner time, we would hear discussions of what was going on in the church and the world, and it was never that censored. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when you yeah. say low church Episcopal, I, I don't know how to imagine that being where I've come from. What what does that mean? Well, it's one of those things maybe where our low church is ever someone else's high church, but right. there's an Anglo Catholic. They always call it the three 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 footed stool or something that you have mm-hmm. the Catholic bent, which was very you know had a very high doctrine of uh you know almost like transubstantiation basically when it came to communion and um priests were you know all of the all of the sacraments were celebrated like all the catholic ones and very smells and bells that we this is how you would categorize it with a thurifer and incense and um, veneration of the eucharist and stuff like that i didn't grow up with that at all Hmm. my mine and then there's the broad church tradition which is the more i guess uh liberal social justice um I guess before that became sort of a code word, but that was there. There was a that was also an authentic strand of the faith, and then there was the low church evangelical strain, which was very much linked to Thomas Cranmer. And um, <clears throat> so you had robes, but they were just Protestant-looking robes. They didn't mm-hmm. look. There wasn't a Roman collar. There wasn't a um, the, you the the, the 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 minister always faced the congregation when they did mm-hmm. uh, the communion, and communion was only one time a month. Oh wow. It was morning prayer the other times. It was it was just the Protestant end. Uh, I guess because mm-hmm. remember it was it was originally legally speaking is the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America. So hmm. that's what it meant means by low church. I mean, still it's use prayer books. There's kneeling. There's um, altars and things like that. But otherwise, it's a lot more. Um, you know, it, it has it feels feels more Protestant. In fact, when I go into sort of some Baptist and some Presbyterian churches that have really, where the minister or the pastor has kind of a love affair with the, the prayer book uh, or liturgy, it feels to me a lot like the church of my youth, hmm. sort of um, rather than today, the Episcopal church has become both more Catholic 
and more broad at the same time. And the small e evangelical wing is kind of just died out or it's, it's gone elsewhere. Um, yeah. So it's a, there's this sadness. It's like the elves leaving uh, Middle Earth. But uh, <laughs> at the same time, there's always new things going on. And I go to a church that very much feels in that tradition hmm. of, uh, although we do communion almost by default every single week, but there, we still yeah. have morning prayer at one of our services, and that's like a big deal. And that used to be the, the normal thing. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you because, frankly, it was really encouraging to me. We talk about faith and pop culture, about secular religions, a little Charles Taylor, and how coping with life really does demand that we get serious about our faith in a crucified and resurrected Savior. So stay with us. In my house, there was not even there was not a not only was there not a distinction between sort of sacred and secular art, there wasn't really much of a distinction between high art and low art or mm. pop culture. So, you know, he a, loves Bach and loves you know he could tell you everything you wanted to know about um, expressionism and G- German painting, but then he will also tell you everything you want to know about monster movies from the fifties, <laughs> and it was all sort of part of the world and I didn't I went to youth group a little bit and then went to some summer camps that were um, where there was a more pronounced like that's the world's music and this is the the church's music but I didn't grow up with that personally I mean it just Mm. was like the the choral work uh, sacred work which is one form of music and he was such a rock and roll person that uh, I guess yeah, I, I now I now I hear a lot about how these distinctions were made in people's lives, and I, 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 I feel for them in certain ways, and maybe in other ways they were protected from something. But um, I also didn't experience it personally, almost at all. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it was like my form of rebellion was to listen to Tool and Pearl Jam and you know all of this kind of stuff, and it was about as deep as my rebellion went, at least in in high school. But um, yeah, those those distinctions were really were really strong for me. And so it, when I got older, and particularly when I got kind of immersed in kind of the world of evangelicalism that was really engaged in thinking deeply about what what pop culture can mean and what it can do and all of this, it was it was a shock to the system for me um, to imagine that you could find something worthwhile in an artifact that was not made by Christians for Christians. So, wow. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely, I, I mean, I hear that from people and I know that that carries with it some kind of, ex, there's always an exciting phase of discovery mm-hmm. involved in that, but then there's also a lot of guilt around listening to the, 
wrong thing or right thing. And, um, I mean, I sort of, I wrote a, I wrote a earlier book about music, which is about how, in fact, music, pop culture is sort of the language of my inner life. And, uh, when I really, when my, when I sort of felt like I got zapped by the gospel, by God, uh, I, the, the terms, the language I had to make sense of, uh, my faith, a lot of it was the language of pop culture and, mm you know, whether it's up to the task is a different story, but that was, um, Mm. I I could journey through all of these uh, pop cultural obsessions of mine and, and, um, look to see how kind of those obsessions were mirroring a certain, I was learning something about God. Um, Hmm. yeah, that's fascinating. Um, what's the name of that book? A mess of help from the crucified soul of rock and roll. It's a, it's a, a niche book to say the, <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> but it's a lot of a lot of a lot of my heart and soul went into it. Yeah, I think all of my books have ended up being niche books. The sales numbers would definitely say that. <laughs> niche. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I like a lot of niche things myself, as I I know you do. So may, yeah. maybe we'll be vindicated one day, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, so you grow up. Uh, what, what part of the country did you grow up in? The Northeast, mainly, uh, okay. around uh, New York, and tr- sort of outside of New York. Uh, born in Manhattan, in fact, but then we lived in, mm. we moved around a bunch. My dad was, sort of, was somewhat restless uh, intellectually and uh, went and got a PhD um, when I was in seventh grade, so we moved to Germany. Mm. Um, so I got some German uh, and sort of European uh, years in, in a, you know, at the time it was painful, but it, it ended up being a great thing. And uh, then they moved back to when they moved back to the states. They moved to the south. Though we lived in Charleston at some point. It was I moved around a lot. I don't. I don't. I don't feel like I've really got a hometown. How do you feel like that affected you? I mean, well, how long have you been in Charlottesville now? You've probably been there longer than than anywhere. <clears throat> yeah, I've been here for nine years, and I still don't feel it's a town full of transplants. Uh, yeah, and I I feel comfortable, and it's definitely my kids, my my children. It's their hometown. And I go around and I, I really enjoy, it's a town where you see people you know, and uh, I, I enjoy that. I think it's maybe my wife doesn't feel the same way, but uh, <laughs> it's because uh, her hurt feels small. And, and it, I don't, you know, they, I was, we were talking the other day about how uh, it was with someone about how a lot of like famous authors have a really complicated relationship with their hometown. Hmm. And that sort of is one of the things they're working out in throughout their work, especially people who come from the South and um, you know, every, all these great writers, they're all, there's so many of them from the South and so many of them are inseparable almost, even though they didn't live there with their, you know, hometown. And um, I don't get that. So I, I, I miss part of that. Maybe, Maybe, but, but then again, maybe I was uh, spared something uh, because mm. a lot of the, those relationships are scarring too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I can't listen to Bruce Springsteen in quite the deepest way possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little removed, one step removed. That's good. Um, so where'd you, where'd you go to school? Well, we went to, I went to school, where, I mean, I went to mainly private schools because we were moving around a bunch and... Um, that I guess was uh, easier on on that front. Um, I ended up going to, but I did when we lived in Germany. I went to German speaking school, and mm. so that was a kind of a, a wild ride. Um, I you then speak German. I do. 
I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I kept up with it somewhat. Yeah. Um, you know, it helps that I sort of write and in, in, interested in theology because it's so it's such a rich tradition. Uh, I went to boarding school for high school because we were moving around so much. Um, okay. And then I went to Georgetown for undergraduate studies. And then okay. uh, that's before, as I was about getting ready to go to grad school, we started Mockingbird. And okay. it uh, hasn't ceased to be... Um, uh, I haven't had any doors closed in my face because of the lack of certain degrees, but I have had, uh, I, I still, you know, wish that maybe, uh, maybe one day I'll do yeah. something like that. A correspondence course, Mike. <laughs> University of Phoenix. Well, I feel like I went the, I went program. through the long way around all this stuff. I, I talked yeah. to people who've, and I, and I grew up in the, uh, family full of theologians and, academics my younger right. brother is a my younger brother is a uh, theologian and a professor at cambridge and uh the, my dad's phd and it's so it's i don't know there are pluses and minuses yeah you learn a lot by osmosis and environments like that <clears throat> it, that's true and then you start a non-profit and you learn a lot that way too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so. so what what This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in Central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in Central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. Tell me, you know, for people who don't know, what what is Mockingbird and and why'd you start it? Mockingbird is a at this point it's like a media platform for connecting uh, the Christian faith with all aspects of everyday life, and um, you know that that's kind of what everyone wants to do and tries to do. I, I think where our um, w- what maybe makes us distinct is that it's a very um, 
grace. Grace is kind of our emphasis in terms of the grace of God. And uh, we, we use some of the reformational language around law and gospel and theology of the cross that is usually associated with Lutheran denominations, even though that's not what we really are. Um, but at this point, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a, it's a platform for integrating, uh, you know, the grace of God with where people actually live. And so we, we do that through, um, very active website and app, a a bunch of podcasts and, uh, which I've had the, uh, you know, privilege of getting to collaborate with you on some and then, um, uh, books and conferences and you name it, all, all of the, all this stuff that basically the internet has made possible for people to do without a gazillion dollar budget. Um, yeah. Mockingbird kind of came up around that time and it's, you know, I have a lot of volunteers, a larger staff than I used to, um, but it's been around for 13 years. I'd be interested in kind of hearing, cause yeah, your, your, I guess your bailiwick is kind of this law gospel juxtaposition. For you guys, it's almost like that's a way of seeing and and interpreting what's going on in the culture around you is is through that lens. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. That's not the only thing. Um, and I get, but yes, the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only the hermeneutic through which we uh, read scripture, but and I believe it's an active and engaging thing that is not like you're in control of, um, sort of the way scripture reads you too. Um, but it's also the way, yeah, it is the foundational sort of lens through which we look at the culture. Um, but there are other things, you know, um, which I try not to, um, there's no, actually, we don't have an official statement of faith or mm. anything like that. I think people know we're, we're still small enough that we can kind of, people know kind of where we're, where we're coming from. But yeah, uh, we're living in a situation denominationally where everything was just becoming, um, uh, you know, Im- Im- embittered, uh, kind of everyone fighting about both ethics, be they sexual or political or what have you, or um, just fighting about church policy, you know, uh, polity. And Mockingbird is sort of born out of a, you know, maybe some bit hubris of young people being like, well, let's just talk about God's grace. And how do- we can't do that without talking about the law and how that works out in people's lives. And let's just uh, fling some, uh, you know, mud at the wall and see what sticks. And that's been, or spaghetti is probably a better term. That's been our, our, our modus operandi. Yeah, no, that's, it's what I so appreciate about what you guys do. I discovered Mockingbird about the same time I discovered Robert Capon's writings. Mm. And that was a one, two punch that really was, in many ways, life-saving for me. I mean, I was in a deep depression and feeling like I could never live up to the expectations of my congregation, of my my office as a pastor and all of this. And to hear such an explicit message of grace was just incredibly life-giving. And so oh. I think... Um, I don't know. I, I think it's it's a voice that needs to be heard because it's it's not the way we talk about... It's not, you know... And I guess for some listeners, they're probably wondering what we're talking about. But, you know, there's just an emphasis on on grace as being this tremendous scandal that, uh, as Capon would probably put it, you know, we get a, we get we get away with something. <laughs> the whole point of the gospel is that we've gotten away with everything because, you know, because Christ is, has stood in the gap for us. Uh, the way you guys articulate that, the emphasis on that just 
again, I just think it's an incredibly life-giving thing. Well, thank you. I mean, I think it's it, the the moralistic therapeutic deism, which I think is really um, uh, accurate, uh, you know, assessment of what at least popularly the church is known for. One of the things I think it's missing. It's not just evangelicalism that sort of operates according to that. I mean, our, our context is probably more mainline Protestantism or where the overlap is between those two worlds, right. but the, the, the sort of the, the left is just as clouded by it as the right. Hmm. And God is basically wagging, uh, his finger and, um, yeah. and sort of waiting for you to do what you need to do, you know, in that sort of deistic way, removed yeah. and wanting, um, maybe there's a little less therapeutic uh, emphasis, but I see it in all all sides of the, the American uh, church. Uh, and, and at the same time, you want to, over, over the years, you don't want to um, shadow box or make people into straw men, uh, you know, that all evangelicals are like this, all right. sort of, you know, progressive Christians are like this. And because, you know, I find that everyone is um, is still, when you boil them down to people, there's a lot of exceptions to these rules. But by and large, when you ask the person on the street what Christianity is about, they sort of, it's about, it's a club for, you know, good people um, telling everyone else how to, how to be rather than, you know, the, the, the league of the guilty is what's, um, is what uh, Francis Bufford calls the church, you know? Oh, wow. And clearly you guys were responding to something when you decided to start Mockingbird. You recognized you recognized something and felt like there was a, a space that needed to be occupied. Yeah, I, I didn't think, I didn't, I looked around, I didn't feel the, the way that the gospel, that God and the, even especially the, the cross has, had been, but not just portrayed, but actually clung to as a comfort and as good news um, in my life, in my own personal sphere and in the sort of immediate sphere um, that I just didn't see it. I, I was so surprised that I, that other people didn't see it that way or uh, disappointed that it was seen as such a driver of um, guilt and, and neuroticism, you know, uh, and so, yeah, there was a point of like, well, how come no one's talking about the, the ways in which the gospel really, the, the grace of God addresses people who are hell bent, literally hell bent on trying to prove themselves. One of the things you guys do so well that I think kind of speaks to the whole philosophy of, of, of Mockingbird is, I mean, it's in the name, like there's, there's a mockery of culture, of absurdity, of moralism that you guys do that's that's really seems like it's baked into the DNA of, of Mockingbird. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I just, it's hard not to talk about our, my own work, you know, without sounding self-important, but I'm glad to know that there's some sort of at least whimsy humor. I wouldn't want it to be mean spirited necessarily because <laughs> we locate yeah. ourselves within the problem, you know, within the mm -hmm. group of perpetrators. If there's some humor that comes across, I think that that's uh, honest because the, most of the Christians, the, what attracted me to Christian communities when I was uh, kind of coming out of college and dealing with the world was that they were so funny about themselves. And, you know, that's not mm. usually what people think. Uh, that's not the public perception. But in my per personal experience, I met a group of Christians who were extremely funny. And so they took the gospel seriously, but they didn't take themselves very seriously. And it wasn't just sort of, you know, dad jokes it was there was a there was a joy a hilarity to it um a freedom to it that 
I always was would would pray that would be um, endemic to anything I would undertake on a public level. I always think of um, the if for listeners who don't follow the Mockingbird Instagram account, they should all go immediately subscribe. The one I always think of when I think of you guys is the caption is Jesus didn't come to serve or to be served, but to serve. And it's Jesus break dancing in front of the, uh, the Pharisees. <laughs> Some people don't think that's being irreverent. I just think it's a, you know, clever, you know, double meaning. <laughs> that's right. So Mockingbird, you, you guys occupy this, this particular space. And then tell me how you, you know, your most recent book is Seculosity. I want to make sure we talk about that, but I want to talk about, I think what, what was the process by which let's do this define for me what a seculosity is and then tell me about how did you come to to notice these things in our culture sure um well seculosity refers to secular religiosity it's a combination of those two words meaning kind of religious devotion or feeling that is directed at uh you know an earthly rather than a heavenly target and some would say well aren't you just talking about idolatry and I'd say that's more worship related when I'm talking about a religious devotion um, I'm Although it does, it is idolatry. By the way, I don't want to say that it's not, but it's a sort of a, it's a specific enough that I wanted a fresh term. In that, I think uh, we can. What we're religious about are the things that we are trying to use to justify ourselves. Right. So there's a strong. Um, when people ask me what the difference is between seculosity and idolatry, I say, well, idolatry is primarily concerned primarily with worship, and seculosity is sort of per- concerned primarily with righteousness or self-justification, right. and. And there's there's overlap, but they're not the exact same thing. And so you have then for the seculosity of um, parenting, and you have the seculosity of politics, and the seculosity of food, and the seculosity of fandom, and uh, the seculosity of uh, work or careerism, or career. Uh, and so these are the, the ways in which, as someone who is now quite familiar with how uh, religious communities work and how you know people form beliefs and how they uh, monitor one another and the disciplines that develop and the way that we sort of have our relationship with God, you know, I was starting to see that play out, um, especially the the anxiety that you would mm-hmm. see in a highly even if it wasn't said so, highly conditional understanding of God's love or approval, uh, where people were constantly jockeying for to be holier than one another, or they never felt like they were holy enough or good enough for God to love, save, um, just simply relate to them. That I was seeing that same anxiety um, and play out in all sorts of non quote unquote religious settings, so that you would see. Uh, you know, I'll never forget being at a uh, playground when I was a young young father and uh, people just feeling completely justified in correcting your parenting in a way that felt to me like someone at church kind of in, in a kind of, I guess, a, a, a shame-based church uh, going around and correcting people on, you know, they're sitting too close to their girlfriend or something like that. <laughs> And uh, before you, it just, it just felt there was a, there was an anxiety, like that everyone felt like they weren't good enough or doing enough or, uh, and that, um, but they all thought they were the only one. 
and mm-hmm. that that seems to mimic a very religious dynamic around self-justification. Why is it you think people feel like they're the only one? Because I sense that as well. I think that's accurate. But what is it about sort of religious performance of all sorts that makes makes us think, well, everybody else has it together. I, you know, the problem is me. I, I can't seem to get it together. Like, what, what do you think drives that sentiment? I mean, fundamentally, I think it's that we are the only ones that know our interior life. And we compare, what's the AA phrase? You know, we compare our insides with other people's outsides. And mm. we can't be inside their head unless we're reading. This is why reading a great novel is actually more important than, our, I think, a deeper experience when it's good than even watching a great movie. And, you know, I don't want to get into relative uh, merits of different types of art, but what's great about a novel at least is that you can experience another's inner life and you can come close to it. And there's a shared humanity that, uh, that comes across. So I don't know. I I think we're a very highly visual um, society. And I think that, you know, social media has clearly um, catalyzed things even more that were already there, but um, it's uh, a nonstop pressure, pressure to present a curated version of yourself to the world. That's always been there, but has never not always been quite as in one's face. But the, the core dynamic is that we only know what's going on in our own heads. And we don't realize that our, our personal, uh, uh, performance or our personal, our, our person, uh, itself is inspiring the same feelings in other people. You know, I wish, yeah. I wish I was more like them. I wish my kids were more like their kids. I wish my, um, you know, I wish I was as smart as that person. I wish I was as put together. I wish I was pretty or as thin or I wish I was as happy. It's, isn't it classic? Like every person you talk to who has worked in a church knows that, um, the, the happiest, the people who seem the happiest on the Sunday morning, uh, they're inevitably the ones you need to pray for because, uh, an explosion is coming and, mm. uh, you get these folks in there in, in your office and they tell you the, they tell you the darndest things, Mike, and, <laughs> and you do it long enough and you still, it's still impossible to completely internalize it. But, um, the amount of students I talk to, I have worked with university students as, in, as a, it's my sort of other job. And they all think that they're the only one that is paddling as hard as they can under the water, you know? I totally identify with that experience because you do see, I don't know, I I don't want to turn this into a Twin Peaks podcast because I literally just talked about Twin Peaks on the pr- previous episode of this podcast <laughs> with uh, with another guest. But part of the reason that show resonates so, resonated so much for me was because as a pastor, everything that everything that David Lynch is saying on that true on that show just seems so true. It seems so real that the, the veneer is truly a veneer and what, what lies underneath that can be so dark and so twisted. And the people who, the people who walk in the doors of your church and seem broken are just the honest ones. Right. Yeah, indeed. And they've almost got a leg up. Um, and uh, it's it's hard to be broken all the time and to be vulnerable and to be honest. That's an exhausting uh, experience in its own right. But it is um, the ones you need to worry about are the ones that everyone thinks are completely, uh, completely uh, perfect, for lack of a better word. Well, and and you compare sort of the the options. The options are to sort of fight for cultivating that veneer and and that exterior thing. And then live with the experience of shame mm-hmm. because you know that you're not living up to it. 
uh, versus figuring out some sort of vulnerability, uh, figuring some way to live with a certain kind of vulnerability and having a little bit more peace of mind about the fact that you're not, that you're not faking it. What's interesting to me in our culture right now, and I'd really be interested in your perspective on this, is you have this culture now of sort of Brene Brown and a lot of talk about vulnerability and shame and then a lot of performative vulnerability on social media. It's one of the things that drives me the most insane is you see some beautifully curated picture or, or selfie of somebody and then them talking about, oh, man, my life is so messy. And but it's just it's just very performative. Right. Totally. Um, yeah, this is that's the definitely the moment we're in right now. I was reading that there's a wonderful article that Tavi Gevinson wrote about uh, Instagram. And she's a girl who is a huge Instagrammer in the early days and uh, what they what they ref, what they mean when they refer to an influencer and she goes to the uh you know the um instagram headquarters and she says all these that what they tell her is that all these celebrities are coming to them saying why are my you know the posts i work so hard to curate are doing well but are doing okay but the ones that do really well are the ones of me being goofy with my kids and it's because people want that actually more than they want the other and of course that then leads to uh the hashtag getting real moments, which there's another <laughs> long article about that in the New Yorker this past week and how now getting real, um, the second it becomes the new ideal, mm-hmm. the new law, it, uh, it inspires a wave of, you know, uh, posing and, uh, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And am I getting real well enough? You know, am I, am I doing this? Am I, is it striking? Cause then you have to be this sort of effortlessly real and that's a more, even more difficult thing to live up to than sort of fake real. Mm-hmm. So it, it uh, inspires ultimately the same thing. It just looks deceptive on the, so, I mean, so what's the option? I don't know what the, what the option is. I mean, T- Gevinson says she just tries to find people who are, seem to be having some fun at least on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, the getting real thing, the, the performative vulnerability is, um, I was talking to someone who just said, you know, the, the, the height of this, of course, the height of this is, um, you know, basically former uh, Christians uh, have you know, coming clean about their sort of doubts and their maybe even their, their lack of faith. But while they're posed looking deep next to, you know, <laughs> next to on top of a mountain or something, and you just think you can't even get away yeah. from performing your own... Doubts. doubts and as what's uh you know Jung Carl Jung apparently said I've never read the essay but you know we we fall off the church the roof of the church into the arms of ourselves and um, you, you just watch a new law being calibrated and someone even trying to perform their deconversion or something and I, that's why it's very very difficult to take seriously or without getting super cynical um, because I think some of those feelings are real, but the second they yeah. become co-opted, is how's this going to look? How is how is this going to play? Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, very. Uh, it, there's no real end to it, Mike. I think the, the the God meets us when we when we surrender, and real surrender doesn't happen in front of an audience. Um, mm-hmm. Or if it does, it's the most embarrassing moment you've ever had, and it's not being performed. <laughs> you know, it's the last thing you'd ever want to have happen to you. It's funny because the, the, my next question for you was like, what's the way out? Like, what's the way out of the, the, the sort of trap of performance and all of that? And 
I mean, you're kind of saying, oh, there's there's not one. <laughs> well, I mean, there's the path that there's God c- comes down to us, right? Rather than us mm-hmm. finding a path to to Him, and there's there's always hope within with when it comes to God. Uh, I mean, I think that the pathway out is uh, what someone said to me the other day is that, um, and this is someone whom I, I greatly respect, uh, and he he was just saying. Um, get off of all social media immediately and stop fooling yourself that it has any kind of constructive value. And I, maybe he was overstating things, but I also think he was, he was, maybe he wasn't, you know? And, um, and then again, if you have like any kind of uh, artistic um, instinct or you want to express yourself or you feel like God has given you something to say and you don't have a pre-existing audience like this person right. actually does, um, what do you do? How do you not use the, the things you've been given? And um, yeah. it's, uh, you know, I, I feel like we, I, I'm really in favor of uh, basically technology for the sake of humor is what I've kind of yeah. come down to. I think it, it's done a lot of, there's... Uh, that that video, the Enneagram Rhapsody thing that someone sent me the other day, it was very, very funny. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what the internet should be used for. And right. uh, not... Yeah, Twitter should Twitter should just be Rex Chapman showing, you know, fail videos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every, everything else should be banned immediately. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something Christian about that. But there's always a path forward with God. I, that's what the book, my book is trying to say. And that's what I, I, I think the closer the wheels come to falling off the bus is more people fall into the arms actually of God. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the Enneagram. That's, that's another one of those things that it's been, it's been a buzz thing lately. And it's been a new way. It's another thing I'd love to just hear your thoughts on because it's become a new way of people finding a sense of identity. Mm. I think Sandra McCracken was the one who referred to it as Christian Dungeons and Dragons, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's, you know, it's another way to kind of, to kind of boil down like a sense of self and a way of talking about yourself that, you know, well, I'm this way because I'm an eight, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bowling over you in this conversation, but I'm, that's okay because I'm an eight or I, you know, I can't sit through a a civil conversation without checking my phone because I'm a seven and I need constant stimulus. Mm -hmm. And on and on and on it goes. It's um, that's really funny. I mean, it, it definitely has overtaken something here. And the the reason Christians are so attracted to it um, is that it, it's not just uh, flattering. Actually, in in it, in it's a, it, when I've dealt with the enneagram, it kind of tells me stuff I don't want to know. Um, mm-hmm. Or it says these are your weaknesses as well as your strengths. Unlike a lot of you know gift testing and all these Myers Briggs things. So in in its in its original. F- form, or at least the more potent form, which I think really does speak to people, it's capturing something of the shadow side of a person mm-hmm. rather than just the flattery. Of course, we then immediately make that into a skeleton key or a way of justifying our rude behavior or mm-hmm. our, um, I'm just this way because, and it's, it's rather than a tool to help, it becomes uh, a kind of a, an unassailable gospel in its own right. And, and I think the, I mean, I honestly think life is so confusing and people we're such a mystery to ourselves that we've all, we, we want something to explain mm-hmm. things. So I, I empathize, sympathize with it, but yes, the, the over, the, the intense popularity of it speaks something to the, to the desperate need for people to, um, you know, you know, not only talk about themselves, <laughs> uh, and but it's also to you know uh, find something that will allow them to tell them it's okay to be themselves, um, mm-hmm. even if 
even if it's somehow in the guise of something that says it's not okay. I, I don't. I haven't developed these thoughts deeply enough, but I do know that yeah. at a Christian cocktail party these days, the first or after they ask you where you go to church, or uh, it's definitely what number are you on the enneagram and. <laughs> Speaking of which, what number are you on the Enneagram? <laughs> what, Have you taken What it? number do you think, Mike? Oh, man. I, man, I would. I want to say a seven. No, I'm a, I'm um, a three. You're a three. I'm a three, okay. I think with a four wing. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely. I can see the four wing. That, that makes sense. I mean, it's endlessly fascinating because it's fun to talk about it ourselves. Is. And I think, it's, right. I think it's a better tool than a lot of others. Um, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of it. I use it all the time in, in uh, coaching and counseling and walk through it with people. And I, I think what, what somebody said one time is they said it, it, for, for pastoral counseling, it's a fast forward button because it's just like it quickly sort of identifies issues to ask questions about and, and yeah, it just speeds the process along in, in terms of self, uh, self-awareness and, uh, and in counseling awareness of what's going on inside of the, the hearts of other people. So yeah, I don't mean to, I don't mean to crap on it, but uh, it's hard. It, it's, it's hard just, not to develop. You have to develop a sense of humor about it at this point because it's become <laughs> such a monumental industry, and all of a sudden we're being right. sold all these things too. And so it's, yeah. um, you know, it's uh, just like anything. I, I don't know. You know, I'm of the opinion that I don't. Uh, I'm with Daniel Kahneman. I, I, I think self knowledge doesn't really um, give you. And St. Paul, I think. Uh, making a study of yourself doesn't actually change you. Um, it's not, it's, it's huh. not, uh, I can self, self-awareness, um, Kahneman, you know, the Nobel prize winning person, he's like, I made a lifetime study of, you know, of self of motivation and uh, self-awareness and, and it hasn't done any, it hasn't really changed me much, you know, in any way, what changes people is, you know, grace is being loved in your weakness or really suffering. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that change you. Self-awareness is great, but it, it, it mask, it's masquerading. I don't think it actually, it can explain why your church staff functions the way it does. And maybe right. some ways, some helpful things to avoid or times when you sh- of day when you shouldn't meet or something like that. But ultimately, people aren't changed by self-awareness. They're, they're changed uh, by grace, yeah. by suffering, uh, by God. I, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine who's a, a pastoral counselor who kind of specializes in working with people who have, you know, pathologies around narcissism. And um, it's so interesting you say that because one of the comments that he made was that there's nothing a narcissist likes more than a personality test. They they just love learning more and more about themselves and and it gives the illusion of being transformative. Oh, now I know this about myself, but it doesn't actually doesn't actually affect their behavior. Mm. So yeah, that's fascinating. I I haven't heard it framed that way before. What what makes you say so you you include Paul in that statement. What what makes you say Paul where, where do you well, see that in, in Paul's work? I, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, he had a self-consciousness that a lot of people would say was sort of revolutionary almost in the way that he wrote. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking really of Romans 7 and knowing mm-hmm. something about yourself or knowing what you should do does not give you the ability to do it. And that's, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that's, that the, the, if that were the case, if, if Jesus could just come down and tell us how we should be living and tell us our Enneagram numbers, and then that we could then just go and sort of do likewise, then he wouldn't have had to die. And there wouldn't have been, we could have, um, 
we we need a stronger brew than uh, the 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 right technique or the right method or even the right ideals or the right um, you know instincts. We we actually how, how does a the 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 problem of the of for the Christian is the problem for the human being is like. Um, what if I know what's the right thing to do to forgive so and so, but I cannot do it? Where, where is there any hope for me then? And um, I think that's the gospel. Certainly has a lot to. Everyone knew they should have stood up for Jesus, and no one did. You know, it's. it's what, what word do we have to failures and to people who lack integrity and to um, continue to do the wrong thing over and over again, even though they know it's right? That's not everyone's universal experience all the time, but I think it's the the, the experience that um, we do come to at, at some key point. People would call it just an existential crisis, but what do I do when I know what I should do, when it's clear to me that I should break up with this person, when it's clear to me that I need to um, not call my son back when he asks for money again, you know, but I cannot seem to not do it. Um, where where's the gospel there? And I think that's actually right where it is. You know that that's where mm-hmm. that's Peter on the beach. You know that's um, that's uh, that's the woman caught in adultery. You know, I, so that's what I mean when I say self awareness. Uh, education isn't actually the answer to the human dilemma. It's a mm-hmm. substitution or a salvation or um, redemption. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. blood sacrifice. I mean, I hate to say these words, but they're, they're so ugly, but these yeah. are the, um, how do you crack the nut that won't crack? You know, there's gotta be some, yeah. someone's got, the blood's going to be shed. Well, and, and, you know, identifying love and suffering as being the things that actually change people. I mean, I think that's just profoundly true. Yet Doesn't that describe Jesus? I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I think people, people sort of agonize for years to, to figure out like, how do I, how do I break this part of myself or whatever? I mean, you know, I can think of somebody who struggled with pornography for years and years and years and years. And it was once he was exposed for it, you know, with his wife, once she became aware of it and the suffering that it in, caused him and her, you know, that was, that was a catalyst for real change mm. where awareness of it and, you know, kind of private confession of it and, and all of that kind of stuff, you know, doesn't have, doesn't have the, the potency of like exposure and guilt and yeah. <laughs> all that, all that comes along with that kind of people, people, people change when it becomes too painful for them not to, uh, yeah. or they've also, they, they, uh, change when they feel that, uh, they don't have to in order to be loved. You know, those are the, these are the great, mm-hmm. uh, engines, I think of hope in, in our lives, although they don't always feel that way at the time. <laughs> so with that last statement, uh, people change when they feel like they don't have to in order to be loved. I mean, that's a big theme in your work. What does that look like? How have you, how have you seen that? Well, I think, um, uh, I, you could just think of your, your own relationship with your wife and, um, you know, once you feel like she's going to love you, uh, you know, no matter what you can, you, you're, you're safe to, um, if you feel she's going to leave you, if you say, this is what I've been doing, um, then you're, 
not going to tell her the thing that's going on. And if you mm-hmm. don't tell her the thing that's going on, it's usually going to get worse. Now, the second you do, but that somehow, if you're, if you've, you've given, if she's given to love you in the midst of that, and you're able to come clean, I think, um, uh, this is who I am. And you don't pledge all of a sudden, like, I'm, uh, no longer not going to do this. Even if it, just the sheer act of confession is an act of repentance. I think that you, you do people, um, you know, they, they, once they feel like the person's not going anywhere, um, this is why I think marriage is so important to be honest with you. It's mm-hmm. why it's so different than just living together and living together. There's a conditional aspect that if you screw up bad enough, I'm going to take off in marriage, at least theoretically, you are closing the, the escape hatch, you know, and that's when the worst, usually people's most awful sides come out. Um, but that's the, the transformation of marriage. When you talk to couples, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in, they'll say, well, well, this person, we've been through such and such together and she loves mm-hmm. me still in any degree to which I'm not the person I used to be. Mm-hmm. The way that I'm maybe a little more patient or that I've been a good dad in certain ways. Um, that is attributed to the fact that the, there was the safety to, um, to confess so, I mean, there's no, I don't want to make it sound like there's some grand formula here because, sure. uh, you know, people. It's like there's no formula for suffering. There's no formula for right. suffering and you can't like. You can't plan for it. You can't plan for it and you can't uh, engineer. Gr- grace only really works if it's not like coerced. You know, that's the whole thing about grace. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that people do, um, they change when they feel they no longer have to in order to be loved. I think that that is, um, if you look, it's more of like a hindsight thing. You know, hmm. you can look back. Um, and again, I, I think it's what happens when people come to faith. They hear this amazing word that God loves you. He died for you, you know, as a, you know, in your sin. That's mm-hmm. while we were yet sinners. And you say, oh my goodness, that I'm loved and accepted and saved right now. Then um, I want to. Uh, you know, to mm-hmm. please that person. I want to sort of figure out how, how shall we then live? You know, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not uh, afraid to, I, I, my, my heart has changed, you know? So. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so maybe one final question. I know we're a little over here and I appreciate your time. Um, but I think a, an interesting note to land on would be, is there a process by which people can kind of di- self-diagnose and see the ways that they're they're living out secular re, uh, religiosity. Um, <laughs> have you seen people be able to kind of, uh, you know, I guess we're back to self assessment and self awareness. So maybe it's not helpful at all <laughs> to to go in this direction. But um, how do you how do you watch for those things? Um. Well, there's like you know, I think I think you read the book, <laughs> and, and uh, could, yeah, read David's book. Ka-ching, for sure. ka-ching. No, but <laughs> you, um, when people feel implicated, you know, I I feel implicated in all the things I talked about. That's why I talked about them in the book. So um, I think if people feel recognized, that that's that's pretty that the book has done a huge, huge uh, service. Um, but um, 
you know, it's it's the Tim Keller sort of question. What is the one thing you feel you couldn't live without, you know, if it were taken away? You ask yourself that, and that's an idolatry question. But what is the what is the one thing that you would say uh, uh, is that you're indexing your enoughness to? You know, is that the stats on your website? Is that the money in your bank account? Is that the score from your favorite team? I don't know what it is, but everyone's got it. You know, look at your browser history if you really want to know. Um, yeah. And uh, where, you know, also where do you give your money? What where, where are these things? Uh, this is also one of the ways, though, in which sort of uh, it's it's hard. To, any of these things are very difficult to do in a vacuum. Like, this is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, get married. <laughs> Or be in a relationship. Easier said than done. I know, I know it's hard. It's rough out there. And I talk about the seculosity of romance in the book. But um, yeah, I think God reveals these things to us too. And the Holy Spirit, you know, if we take God at his word, the Holy Spirit is in the conviction business, not just in the... um, not just in the uh, comfort business, you know? That's what I think, mm-hmm. I th- I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of language in there uh, about the Holy Spirit convicts. And I, I, I believe we, we, you know, are given to trust the Holy Spirit to the extent that that's possible. Yeah, and it seems like in, in your framework, if, if I understand you correctly, like the work of the Christian life is to some extent that the awareness of those things, but then the work is, is then uh, coming to coming to have faith in the reality that our enoughness comes from from Jesus. Uh, yeah, and, I mean, I, what you just described is that God wants us to be faithful, not right. necessarily to be better. I mean, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think that he would, is bad, it's a bad thing that we get better, but what, what, what I believe God is looking for in us is faith. And how is faith produced? Faith is produced when you stop trusting in yourself. And you start to your 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 fingers are pried off the driving wheel, and you look to uh, where your faith might be put, and that's usually a process of death and resurrection. It can be a process of simple action and consequence, and God works in all sorts of ways in people's lives, and He puts things on people's hearts. I think that are of the Holy Spirit. I don't really, I, I have no, again, no prescription here, but I do know that I, I, I've come to believe at this point in my life that you look at the, you know, the great, the great Christian leaders that I, we think highly of the, the, uh, you know, Mother Teresa's and the Billy Graham's and the uh, W.H. Auden's or something like that. And you, you, you hear from them at the end of their life that they have a larger view of God and a smaller view of themselves. They don't see themselves as usually having gotten much better, but they view themselves as, as having been um, trusting slightly more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and mm-hmm. that's faith. So I think, uh, we, we, you know, we want faith to increase. Um, faith produces fruit, by the way. I, I, it's not like, it's not anti-fruit, right. but uh, it's right. pro-fruit. I'm pro-fruit. I like all the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I had some mango this morning. It was incredible. <laughs> that's great. That's great. I think that's a good place to land, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much. Now first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. I hope you found that as encouraging as I did. Big thanks to David for making time. Hey, you can support this podcast over on Patreon head over to patreon.com slash join slash cultivated and chip in a few bucks. We're planning on having some bonus content over there soon. 
Cultivated is produced by the Narrativo Group. We make podcasts in Narrativo. Head over to narrativogroup.com to learn more. You'll find links for both of those and for Mockingbird in our show notes. I edited and mixed this episode. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a conversation that I had with James K.A. Smith. You won't want to miss it. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.